This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for real life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, come and join us at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash community. Thank you and happy listening. So we come to the third of the mind-turning reflections. So just to recap, we've already heard about and reflected on the precious human birth, which has its emphasis on uh, the opportunity we have in this lifetime to practice the Dharma and all the favourable conditions that have given rise to that possibility. And we've heard in the second reflection the reflection on impermanence and death which stimulates a sense of conviction and urgency and purity of practice and those two talks very much go together those two reflections very much go together and now we come to the third and fourth of the mind-turning reflections which again go together and you could have the one on karma and rebirth first and the one on, or the one on the faults of conditioned existence first. It doesn't really matter. They go together. So I'm going to be talking about karma and rebirth. Mainly, in fact, about karma and karma vipaka. And probably the best known formulation of the law of karma is the one that we all know from the Dharmapada. I'm just going to remind us of some of those verses from the first chapter in the Dharmapada and this is Bhante's translation and the Dharmapada uh, must be one of the earliest Buddhist texts it must be pretty close to what the Buddha actually taught so the Buddha says experiences are preceded by mind led by mind and produced by mind If one speaks or acts with an impure mind, suffering follows even as the cartwheel follows the hoof of the ox drawing the cart. Experiences are preceded by mind, led by mind and produced by mind. If one speaks or acts with a pure mind, happiness follows like a shadow that never departs. Those who entertain such thoughts as He abused me, he beat me, he conquered me, he robbed me, will not still their hatred. Those who do not entertain such thoughts as he abused me, he beat me, he conquered me, he robbed me, will still their hatred. Not by hatred are hatreds ever pacified here in the world. They are pacified by love. This is the eternal law. Others do not realise that we are all heading for death. Those who do realise it will compose their quarrels. The evildoer grieves in both worlds. He grieves here and he grieves there. He suffers, torments and torments himself seeing his own foul deeds. The doer of good rejoices in both worlds. He rejoices here and he rejoices there. He rejoices and is glad seeing his own pure deeds. The evildoer burns in both worlds. He burns here and he burns there. 
He burns with remorse, thinking he has done evil, and he burns with suffering, having gone after death to an evil state. The doer of good delights in both worlds. He delights here and he delights there. He delights in this life, thinking he has done good, and he delights after death, having gone to a state of happiness. And I think probably um, those verses would be enough to reflect on in terms of the law of karma. Um, It's actually all in those verses. They're well worth reflecting on. So the Buddha's enlightenment experience, the most essential formulation of that is the formulation that we know of as conditions co-arising or dependent origination. So this is the most um, essential way of expressing the experience of the Buddha at his enlightenment. So the realisation, the actual experience he had that transformed his life and answered the questions that he'd set out with on his noble quest. And one of the simplest ways of expressing that is that all things arise in dependence on conditions and they cease when those conditions no longer hold. So it sounds very basic, um, it sounds quite easy, but it's so far-reaching and so hard to grasp. And it's an understanding that wasn't in the world, it wasn't in this world until the Buddha saw it and realised it for himself. And that most essential formulation is given shape, is given application in many different ways. It can be applied to everything and there there are many ways in which we're familiar with it. The Four Noble Truths, the Twelve Nidanas are some of the most familiar. But it's the same thing when we come to looking at the law of karma. The law of karma is usually expressed as skillful actions lead to happiness or desirable outcomes. Unskillful actions lead to suffering or undesirable outcomes. So it's a particular way of a particular set of actions that we're looking at. And we're going to look at what those actions are. So it's saying that some particular actions have particular outcomes, other actions have the opposite outcome. Karma literally means action, although it's got many, many associations. And action in this case refers to actions of body, speech and mind. So it's not just overt actions or even just speech but it's our mental states. In fact, it's primarily a matter of our mental states. And the distinction that's being made in the formulation of karma is between skillful or unskillful actions. So I'm sure you all know this already, but skillful actions are those that are performed on the basis of positive mental states. That is the opposite of unskillful mental states. So unskillful mental states are usually referred to as mental states based in greed, hatred and delusion or ignorance. So anything we do when we're we're in a mental state that's tinged with craving or anger or hatred or ignorance is going to have a painful outcome. 
And anything we do that when we're in a positive mental state based on the opposite of those is going to have a good outcome, in inverted commas. So that's the law of karma. And one of the first things that needs saying is that it doesn't work the other way around. So it's very, very important to make this point quite early on, which is that just because we're having, if we're having a, a painful experience, an experience of suffering, it does not necessarily mean that that's as a result of an unskillful action. The teaching that makes sense of that is the teaching of the five niyamas, which I hope you're all familiar with. So the five niyamas explain different modes of in which conditionality can be enacted, in, in which it takes place. There's the physical, physical inorganic, which is the uta niyama. There's the biological, which is the bija niyama. And then there's what's referred to as the non-volitional mental, which could be seen as the psychological in a sense, but it's non-volitional, that's the distinction, which is chitta niyama or mano niyama. And then there's the ethical mental events. So that's the volitional aspect of conditionality. <coughs> which is karma niyama, and that's what we're going to be particularly looking at. And then there's a fifth category, which is spiritual or dharmic niyama. It's a bit harder to say exactly what that is, but it's, um, it could be seen as other power, uh, something coming from outside of normal conditionality coming into play. It could be seen in our experience as the spiral path, so it's a sense of a different kind of conditionality, a different experience of conditionality. But to look more closely at karma niyama. So this is conditionality which, is, which takes effect on the basis of volitional mental states, volitional activity. And maybe one of the first things to say is that there is karma and there's karma vipaka. So as a result of our karma or our volitional activity, there is an effect which is pleasurable or painful, which is the consequences that we reap, as it were, of our, our states of mind, which is our karma vipaka. And there's not much we can do about karma vipaka. In fact, there's not much we can do about pleasure and pain generally. Pleasure and pain can be caused by all sorts of things. It can be caused by other niyamas, or it can be the effect of karmic activity of our own. But either way, once we're into the effects of something, it's non-karmic at that point. There's nothing good or bad about it. It's just, it just is pleasurable or painful. Life is pleasurable or painful. It just is. So we can't do much about that and actually it can be quite a relief to know that. I think it can encourage us to let go of the past and not to um, angst too much about the past. But we can choose how we, how we respond to pleasure and pain. And this is something that's, that's obviously key to our understanding of how the world works. 
because the alternative model would be that um, either that everything is just random, so that it's just luck, it's just, um, you just, there's no reason why things should work one way or the other way, why some people should seem to have more pleasurable experiences of life and other people have more suffering. It's just random. And it's not either, the, the, the opposite of that, the extreme opposite, is that somewhere it's just fate, whether that's to do with God or not, but it's kind of written in stone what's going to happen to us and there's nothing we can do about it. But in between those two extremes is the possibility of change and the possibility of choice. And in Bantis' terms, the possibility of a creative rather than a reactive response and the possibility of transformation. So this is where the whole question of free will comes in. That uh, This is maybe something we can reflect on and talk about further. So actions have, our actions have consequences, but it's not foreordained what kind of actions we'll carry out. So we experience pleasure or pain, and actually there is the potential to have a choice at that point. It's the famous gap on the wheel that we're used to. And the fact that there is this possibility of change is obviously very, very significant. I asked Banty once, I, was, I remember being quite confused, about. I asked him, how can we change if our, if our experience is rooted in greed, hatred and delusion, then how can we ever kind of think ourselves outside that box? And I remember him saying, there's nothing wrong with our experience. It's our interpretation of our experience that's the problem. So our experience is just is. Our experience is how things are. But we habitually misinterpret it. But we have our experience. We have the raw material that is, is showing us how things are all the time. It's not as though we have to go and find how things are. They're staring us in the face the whole time. We just have to see them. But in order to see them, um, we need a dharmic framework. We need some way to help us shift our habitual way of seeing things. But we don't need very much in the way of a dharmic framework, actually. We probably all have everything we need in terms of a dharmic framework. So it's interesting to reflect that we have our experience and we have a dharmic framework. And actually, that's all we need. We just have to do the work. And it's the same message that's in the first of the two mind-turning reflections. We have the precious human birth and opportunity. We have come across the Dharma and we have the faculties to make sense of it. We have the ability to make sense of it. And then we have our raw experience of impermanence and death. It's around us all the time. And we just have to practice. But to go back to karma and skillful or unskillful, it's also interesting to reflect on how how do we tell whether something is skillful or unskillful. It's actually, again, remarkably easy. It's not as though we have to sort of sit down and get hold of our mental state and look in a book to work out whether it's based in craving or hatred. It's it's so simple. There's um, an instinctive sense 
once we're um, reasonably adult, there, there is actually, all of us have the potential for making that distinction. It's, it's inbuilt. We're born with that, the potential for making that distinction. Maybe as very small children, where the universe is an extension of us, um, it's a little bit harder to, to start to make that distinction, but it doesn't take much for... It, you can see that children have that ability to understand that once it's sort of spelt out in terms of, you know, if you hit him, he'll probably hit you back and he won't like it and it would hurt if he hit you, so don't hit him. But uh, we have this natural inbuilt ability to distinguish. We just know. Um, we have, we're born with a conscience. We just know whether something is skillful or unskillful. It's something we need to work on. It's something we need to refine. And the more we practice, the more sensitized and clear we become about the distinction. But it's interesting that uh, it's a law of the universe that activity based on greed, hatred or delusion will eventually result in suffering. It sort of begs the question, well, why? Um, Why should that be the case? And you, you start hearing these terms like uh, we live in an ethical universe. Well, it seems very strange that the why should we live in an ethical universe as opposed to a, an unethical universe? And I'm going to go a little more, a little bit further on, a bit, bit more into why that might be the case and how how it actually happens, how it works. But for the moment, we'll just take it on trust that that is how it seems to work. And in terms of karma, uh, the teaching of karma is obviously very bound up with the idea, the concept of re-becoming or rebirth. It's quite embedded in fact, the two are quite embedded, but they don't, you don't have to necessarily embrace both. But the Buddha's enlightenment experience did arise very clearly out of a reflection, or how it's come down to us, is that it was very bound up with a reflection. He saw his past, he saw his past lives, and he saw them unfolding. And he could see the past lives of all other beings, and he could see them stretching into the future. And you get a very strong sense that what he could see, the significance of this, was he could see how they unfolded. He could see the law that governs their progression. And on the basis of that was his, his understanding of enlightenment. So karma seems to be very, very bound up as part of the understanding of conditioned co-production. And the Buddha's explanation behind re-becoming. We don't have to take it on, it's foreign to our culture. It may take a bit of time to see whether it fits for us, whether it makes sense for us. But it hasn't been contradicted by any of the schools of Buddhism down the ages. So it's worth giving it considerable weight. But we can see the workings of karma and karma vipaka simply as they operate in this lifetime. It's very clear from the verses in the Dharmapada that karma has an effect in this lifetime as well as it's postulated in future lifetimes. So 
they're not separate, but it's, it's two ways to look at the workings of karma. So there's the immediate application of karma in the immediate aftermath of an event, an action. So what happens when we, perform, when we do something that's either skillful or unskillful? Is there an immediate response? This is what the Dharmapada is telling us. And it would imply that there's a, what the Dharmapada is saying is there's an immediate sense of remorse or clear conscience, rejoicing, delight. So we can look at, well, do, do we experience that? It's saying that, um, do we have, if we've, if we've been unskillful, do we have an immediate natural response of free or apotrapia? Um, or do we have the opposite when we've been skillful? Do we have a sense of clearness, clarity, delight, gladness, clear conscience? And then there's looking further into the future in terms of how our actions play themselves out. So traditionally it would be seen as uh, a future becoming. But we can see it just as a, we tend to see it more as a, a continual process that's happening, that's unfolding. It's as though sometimes um, a model that we can use is as though we're, we're a bundle of samskaras. Bhante said we're a bundle of habits and a lot of them are bad habits. So we could see ourselves as essentially a kind of momentum and it's been gathering steam for a long time and it's got lots and lots of threads to it. So it's as though we're this collection of multicoloured threads and some are thicker than others. And we're, if you cut through this rope which is made up of all these threads at any one point you'd see a particular slice of what we are at that time. And effectively that's kind of what happens when we die is that whatever we are collection of samskaras is at that point is still what's driving on into the future. But it's an ongoing process, it's not something that just happens at death, it's not something that just takes shape in a future birth. We're always recreating ourselves, we're always re-becoming So is this our experience? Are these two aspects of the unfolding of karma and karma vipaka, is this what actually happens if we look at our experience? So how do we feel if we've something has happened, probably something painful, and we've responded with anger? Just think how we feel. Or how do we feel if something has happened and we've responded with empathy? How do we feel if we've responded with generosity or how do we feel if we've responded with um, a tighter, more self-oriented response? How do we feel if we've, when we've been mindful and we've been sensitive and when we've not? So that's like the immediate experience of skillfulness or unskillfulness. And in terms of looking a bit longer into the future, well, we can look back and think, well, how have we changed over the years? And do we get a sense of our practice having influenced that change? Sometimes it's easier to look at other people and think, how have they changed and how are they changing? 
can be quite hard to see our own process of change. Five or six years ago, we had a couple of retreats for women who'd been ordained for 10 years or more. And one of the first things we did was ask ourselves, did we think we were any nearer to stream entry than we had been when we were ordained? And everybody said yes. And it was very um, marked. It was as though with 10 years, with 10 years practice, it was a long enough period of time to look and have some kind of, that kind of perspective and see the effect of our practice. And I felt it was very, very affirming because um, you, can, you can doubt it in the short term and you can sometimes despair that you've made any progress. But actually, if you look back and uh, have that kind of perspective, you can see that, well, hopefully you can see that your practice has had an effect and that we have changed. And in our experience, again, to see whether our experience bears out the law of karma, sometimes it can be hard to understand how karma works because it can seem as though, sometimes it can seem as though people get away with it or they're lucky. But the law of karma, one of the explanations of how it works is that uh, karma will always, your vipaka will always take effect but you don't know when. But it's there. It's as though a seed has, a seed has been sown um, every time we act. Another seed has been added on one side or the other. And the theory is that, well, different, karma, different vipakas will kick into effect at different times. And there's a whole theory behind the relative priority of karma taking effect. Apparently the... the what's most likely to happen is that weighty karma, so something that's a big karmic consequence, is likely to have priority. And then if we've just died, or it's like the most recent karma, so what's very fresh will be having an effect. And then there's habitual karma, which is worth bearing in mind, which is that all those little things that we do, which seem so insignificant, but actually add up over a long period of time, habitual karma has an effect. And finally, there's the catch-all of residual karma. So we don't know exactly when things are going to have an effect. And then how do we um, actually put the our understanding of karma and karma vipaka into practice because hopefully you know already everything that I've just said. But despite the theory, uh, the dharmic framework and our experience, which is hopefully reflecting this back all the time, we seem to not act as though we, we believe it. In fact, we often seem to act as though we believe the opposite. We tend to go about life as though a favourable outcome is most likely to happen if we have rather than if we give and if we win rather than if we understand. So that's worth reflecting on. In terms of what we seem to go about trying to create, it's as though um, we think a favourable outcome will be if we can have, have, have things, more and more things. 
rather than give. And if we can win, for example, rather than understand. I'm sure we all know this. Um, there's a desire to, to get things and to hold on to them, and there's a desire to kind of prove ourselves right. Although if we think about the feeling associated with those different actions, we can probably get a sense of uh, it being a more pleasant experience when we give. It's actually completely topsy-turvy. It's completely upside down. It's very, very strange. It's as though the spiritual life is a whole relearning and a turning upside down of some of our most basic assumptions. So, for example, sometimes we've been, we've had a maybe a, an impulse to give. We have second thoughts because it means parting with something. So our worry is that we're going to have less, so we'll be smaller somehow. But if we manage to do it and we give, actually we tend to feel bigger. We tend to feel um, bigger and more expansive and connected. And I suppose we just have to try to be to reflect on this and to let it sink in more and more deeply that actually uh, we'll be happier if we can give. So we tend to just dig a hole. We tend to just, um, on the basis of old assumptions, we just tend to reinforce them rather than learn the lessons and start to create something new which is more pleasant for us and others. So we need to reflect on karma because we don't, even though it's a very simple teaching and although we may believe it in theory, we don't always practice it. So we need to reflect on it to bring it alive in our lives. And the good thing about it is that as well as reflecting on it, it's a very, very practical teaching. In fact, it needs putting into action. It needs, it's something that needs to be not just thought about and reflected on, but it needs to translate into action. Karma is action. And it gives us somewhere to start. Sometimes we can, um, we can just feel we don't know where to start with our spiritual lives. Um, but it's something Bantis made very clear, that we can always choose, and we can always choose to act skillfully rather than unskillfully. We always have that option, regardless of circumstances. So it, it gives us somewhere to start. But we have to put it into practice. And... That may well mean that we need to translate it into bite-sized chunks. So it may well be, for example, we, we have karma and the law of conditionality in the ethical sense. Well, we have the five and ten precepts. So we have, um, we have these um, guidelines as to how we can practice. But even then, we probably need to translate the precepts into something personally particularly applicable so it's worth bearing in mind that from time to time we probably will need to create personal precepts for ourselves we need to make the not to just always dwell in the theoretical realm but to also make things tangible and concrete and um, we also need to understand that there's no such thing as inaction in terms of karma we, we like to think that if we're just rather vague and we don't do anything very much, that somehow nothing much will happen. 
It's extraordinary how vague we can be around it. But um, Bantis said there's no, there's no standing still in the spiritual life. If you're not moving forward, you're slipping backwards. That's one of his aphorisms. So we not only need to be not doing unskillful things, we need to be doing skillful things. And so not doing is actually perpetuating a state of craving and ignorance as much as doing unskillful things is. So again, in terms of personal precepts, this is something that Vajradarshan has drawn out. Um, maybe something we can talk about in our groups. That it's quite useful to have this sense of the theory and the concrete and what we're moving away from and what we're moving towards. And we can use that kind, those axes to help us formulate personal precepts. And the practice of karma, well it gives us, it gives us, as I said, it gives us somewhere to start. It gives us a way of practicing that we can always use. Because sometimes we can feel a bit stuck. We can feel either we just don't know what to do next, or we can have these leaps of enthusiasm where we think we'll, we'll try to be enlightened, we'll try and have insight, we'll try and transform ourselves in that kind of way. And actually somewhere in the middle, um, although we'd like change to be fast, and sometimes we feel, speaking personally, that we're prepared to do almost anything if we could just make it happen fast, it's actually um, a gradual process, but with profound implications. So spiritual change is, is something we need to be prepared to work on for lifetimes. And so going back to the nature of the mind-turning reflections, well traditionally uh, this particular reflection on karma and karma vipaka. Traditionally, it's, um, it's seen as two things. It's seen as reminding ourselves of the danger of rebirth in lower realms. So it's the waking us up to the fact that if we practice, if we commit unskillful actions, we're creating, we're building up painful experience in lower realms. Um, and we can also understand this in terms of where well, we're building up a painful existence for ourselves. We're building up um, confusion, doubt, painful experience, suffering. But the other side of that, the other side of the wake-up call, is that there's massive potential benefit to acting skillfully. So traditionally we often reflect on the benefits of practice so we can reflect on the benefits of skillful actions we can change ourselves for a start we can tra- it is the way in which we change ourselves so we change ourselves by acting skillfully we change others experience of us and we ch- change our experience of the world so there's these three connected ways in which we bring about transformation by choosing to act skillfully And I'm going to go into each of these headings a little bit. 
So first of all, in terms of changing ourself, well, changing ourself is probably got a sense that it's about well, what are we? We're trying to change our being. We're trying to change our consciousness. We're trying to change uh, our essence, our nature. And there's a danger. There's a danger of thinking that we're of somehow mis- misunderstanding the nature of change. There's a danger of thinking that we'll still be who we are, but we'll just understand things differently. So the danger in spiritual life of thinking that we'll still be essentially who we are, um, we'll be able to hold on to that, but we'll just have understood something. We'll have, yes, we'll have done enough reading, we've read enough books, and we'll have enough grasp of enough dharmic formulations, and somehow that will mean that everything's different. But actually, as I was saying. Um, in terms of the nature of change. The nature of change actually has to be very gradual. We have to lay the foundations. We have to prepare the foundations. The whole thing about the path of gradual steps is that we do the work, we do the gradual steps, and then radical transformation, real transformation will arise, but we can't force it, we can't make it happen, we can't choose to make it happen. We have to just keep preparing the ground. So, for example, in meditation, we understand that the importance of dhyanic mental states, for example, is not that they're an end in themselves, but that if we have some experience of dhyana, it has an effect on our consciousness. When we're in dhyana, we're in a very, very different state of consciousness. And with a bit of familiarity with that, and a bit of that having a longer-lasting effect, Apparently our our consciousness becomes more pliable and more amenable to being able to actually absorb and make use of an experience of insight. So it's not that insight doesn't... We'll all have had moments of insight and they will have had an effect on us, but for them to really have a a long-lasting transformative effect on us, we need to have loosened up our consciousness. We We need to have prepared it. It needs to be habitually more positive and more receptive and less identified, less less fixed. And the practice of ethics too, so speaking to somebody who doesn't experience a lot of dhyana, um, I find it very reassuring that the practice of ethics kind of is working on the same ground. Because the practice of ethics, the practice of skill, practicing skillfully, so the practice of karma in terms of skillful actions is not just about becoming more skillful and that therefore the action uh, the consequences will be that we're happier this seems to be something that we hit over and over again in our spiritual lives it's so easy to end up with the view that somehow we're practicing in order to just make samsara more acceptable i'm sure this is something my tray will be going into so ultimately the motivation for practicing spiritually and for practicing ethically is that ultimately we're trying to transcend karma altogether. It's something that's quite hard to get our heads around. But the Buddha had gone beyond 
being skillful or unskillful. It's something we don't. It, it is hard to imagine. It sounds a bit blank. But there comes a point where, although Karma Vipaka may still be playing itself out, we no longer need to act, to be making that choice to act skillfully or unskillfully, because our whole being, our whole consciousness, is so different that it naturally, we just naturally are responding from a basis of understanding of reality. And that's of a different order to simply being skillful or unskillful. Being skillful is kind of by definition a duality. It's, um, it's the opposite of being unskillful. So while we've got that choice, um, we're still having to make that choice, that effort to be skillful. But there comes a time when that it just would be our nature to be compassionate and wise because that's how we would be. But we have to begin by transforming ourselves and one way in which we do this is ethically. So we're changing from a narrow, tight, self-interested experience of the world to something that's broader, more flexible, more empathic. We can get a sense of that different, that shift in quality. And this is what we need to do. In a way, um, one way of looking at the practice of ethics is that it is how an enlightened being would naturally be. Um, so although we're practicing on a different level and we're practicing in a rather imperfect way, the fact that we make the effort to practice skillfully gradually changes our being. It's as though you have these two scales. The scales are, are very useful in terms of explaining how change comes about. So it's as though we're, we're just dropping seeds of skillfulness in one side of the scales or unskillfulness in the other side of the scales. And at some point, out of all those little drops, something shifts. And this, this happens at different times in our spiritual life, this shift. Um, it happens at stream entry, it happens at enlightenment, where qualitatively there's a whole shift in the process. But we need to be doing these little drops. We need to be doing that in order for that shift to then come about. And there's a very deep-seated change that we're trying to bring about. We're trying to root out ignorance, craving, hatred. But we can't really get at it immediately. We can't get at it head-on. As I say, we have to work at it from this point of skillfulness until such time as we are in a different kind of relationship with the world and then and then something happens. And the Yogacara has a model for this, which I'm going to manage not to go into in too much detail this time, which says that at the heart of our delusion and the root of our craving is the fact that we have four delusions about self. These are the four atmaklashas. And they are self-view or atmadrishti, Self-delusion or atma moha, self-conceit, atma mana, and attachment to self, which is atma shneha. So, self-view is the collection of views we have about ourselves. We think that we're substantial. We think that we're <coughs> something we can rely on and get hold of. 
And the, the, the other side of that is that it's a delusion. Um, actually, there is no fixed self. And another side to this is self-conceit, which is it's that we're the, we are we are the centre of the universe. It's just it's this conceit of um, our experiences very deeply that we are where everything is. And attachment to self, which goes with that, is that and we are wonderful. We're very deeply attached to ourselves. This may also take um. It can take a sort of perverted form of the opposite of that, but essentially, we we love. We're very very important to ourselves. And the usefulness of the Yogacara model is that this is hardwired. It's it's just how we are. It's a bit like um, the way our consciousness is. We can only make sense of things in terms of time and space, but actually they're just relative. Um, that they're not absolute things, they're, they're part of our relative reality, but we can't experience outside of them. It's the nature of human beings to have experience in a particular way. And part of our experience, the nature of our experience, is to have this wrong, deluded um, understanding of ourselves. And that is the problem. That's what we're trying to root out. That's what we're trying to transform. But we can't get it at it head on. So, although it's really, really important, we do get down to, to the, the, these views and these experiences. We also, what's helpful about the, this model is that um, we shouldn't give ourselves a hard time for having these views, having these wrong views. They're not an ethical matter as such. There's nothing, you know, we can't immediately do anything about them, they're just how we are. And in fact, we maybe need to we need to approach them quite differently. So we approach them sideways. We approach them gradually. We approach them by practicing ethically, by practicing skillfully, until such time as our our experience is a much more positive one. Our relationship between self and other is much more positive, and then. What happens as a basis of having created a much more skillful, a much more in line with reality experience is that one of these shifts can then take place. So it's not something that we make happen, but it's as though we we can prepare the ground and then at some point some fundamental shift happens. It's called a turning about in the deepest seat of consciousness. And that's when wisdom really arises, that's when ignorance is really transformed. So the practice of ethics does actually go a very long way because ethics is about karma, ethics is about um, the relationship between self and other and fundamentally that is the root of all our delusion and our craving. So ethics, our practice of ethics is a gradual process with enormous potential and implications that can that if you follow the logical conclusion of that it is a path which takes us all the way to enlightenment um, it's not separate from the practice of meditation and, and the practice of the arising of wisdom it's a continual process but we start with ethics and 
Yeah, that is where we need to start. But it's not just about transforming ourselves. It is about transforming ourselves, and it's about transforming ourselves into enlightened beings. But there's a danger maybe of getting a little self-absorbed, in, in which case we won't get anywhere. So we also need to be aware that the practice of ethics, the practice of being aware of karma and karma vipaka, is um, an understanding of the fact that we have an effect on other beings. It's very much about the relationship between ourselves and others. If we act unskillfully, we don't just harm ourselves, we cause pain to others. And we need to be awake to that, we need to take in the reality of other beings. It can be very, very helpful to actually, it can be very painful, very salutary, to understand the effect we've had on someone else. Sometimes we need that, we need to hear how our actions have landed to actually really be motivated to change them in the future. So we have a responsibility. Again, we can't just fall back on inaction. We can't just think that, well, we're not doing anything terribly bad, so we'll just get by and uh, not cause too much of a ripple in the world. Actually, there's a huge responsibility that goes with the understanding of karma and karma vipaka. We have an effect, we have an effect by our inaction as well. So there's this huge potential, and with potential comes responsibility. So we can just reflect on the responsibility that we have in terms of the effect we have on other beings. And we have an effect not only immediately on, just to make it even worse, we have an effect not just on the beings that we actually impact on, immediately, but we have an effect on the world collectively. Uh, Bantis talked about um, a kind of cloud of skillfulness or unskillfulness. And it's as though um, the Buddha's teaching of conditionality is so massive. When you start to look at it more deeply, you start to see how deeply conditioned we and all beings are and how each of us condition and affect not only the causes of any experience are so myriad that you start to see the, the net of the web of conditionality that is so all-embracing. So if we, again, there's this drop of um, skillful or unskillful in the scales that affects ourselves, it doesn't just affect ourselves, it's as though um, that does have a a cumulative effect in the world and we add to that in one way or the other. We can't just, it's not, it's not a weight that lands just on our shoulders, we're not going to be able to just personally, as a fixed self, we're not going to be able to transform the world. But if we take responsibility for our part in the world, we are sharing in the Bodhisattva ideal and we're, we're sharing in that responsibility that we, we have, we and others have an effect in the world and the knock-on effect of our actions is just so much bigger than we sometimes realize one act of for example one act of meta it affects the next person they're then feeling more positive so their actions are more likely to be positive when you think about it the the knock-on effect is enormous the ripple effect is enormous it's the model of a butterfly flapping its wings on one side of the world and you have a hurricane on the other.
So we don't just affect ourselves and transform ourselves and affect others, both immediately and more broadly. We do affect the world, but however the world is, we also, if we choose to act skillfully or unskillfully, we also strangely, miraculously, we affect our experience of the world. So however the world is, actually, we can completely transform our experience of the world. And we can see this in terms of, you know, sometimes when there's been a disagreement about something, it's quite extraordinary how you can uh, come out of a, just had experience of this recently, you come out of a meeting and someone draws up the minutes and you read them and you think, that's not quite what I thought happened at the meeting, or worse still, no one writes any minutes and you all try and remember what happened at the meeting. And actually, you've all got a different memory. So our memory, but our experience of events, is very, very different. So we can't extrapolate. For example, if we experience something as painful, it means that we can't just rest in blaming the outside agent and just feel that, well, it's all happening out there and they should have been more skillful because then that would have been nicer for us. Um, that may be true, but we can't affect that. But what we can affect is our response. And we have a huge, going back to the very beginning of my talk, we have a huge repertoire of choices, of, of responses that we can make. And the fact that this is so gives us actually just huge freedom. So whatever our circumstances, we have enormous freedom. It may, t it, it may not be something that we can just do overnight, but over time we can create a very different world for ourselves. And we have some very dramatic um, accounts of this. Um, there are accounts all the way through the Buddhist scriptures. Some of the most, um, there, there are striking modern accounts, for example, I always remember Nelson Mandela's biography, his autobiography, and his account of um, freedom at the end. So I'll just end with another quote. The rain has stopped, the clouds have drifted away, and the weather is clear again. If your heart is pure, then all things in your world are pure. Abandon this fleeting world. Abandon yourself then the moon and flowers will guide you along the way. That's Ryokin. We hope you enjoyed the talk. Please come and help us keep this free at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash community. And thank you.